today on Fuzzy Logic, we're asking who cares? That's right, who cares about marine science? We're joined by scientists and researchers who are talking at the Who Cares Marine Science Forum happening down at the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre next weekend. So stay tuned to hear about acid in our oceans, tsunamis and humpback whales. A whole lot of marine science coming up today on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. It's fantastic to have you with us here this morning on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM. Hopefully you're here listening in Canberra, or you might be streaming us online, or even listening to the podcast. Whatever way you're listening to us, it's fantastic to have you here, because we've got a great show lined up. We're talking marine science today, and the Who Cares Marine Science Forum, which is happening down in Eden next weekend, run by the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre. My name's Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. And joining me is actually someone from the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre. It's Jill. Good morning, Jill. Morning, Brad. Fantastic to have you here. And uh, you've lined up some very special guests for us today. I have. I've lined up three of the speakers. We're going to be having six over the Marine Science Forum, so I've got three for us today. All right. Well, we should jump straight into it with our first speakers today. They are Steve and Kate. Now, Dr. Steve Eggins is a marine biogeochemist and a senior fellow of the Research School of Earth Sciences at the Australian National University. Good morning, Steve. How are you going? I'm very good, Bron. It's great to be here. Fantastic. And we're also joined by Kate Holland. Now, Kate's a PhD student at the Research School of Earth Sciences at the ANU. And uh, it's great to have you in with us this morning, Kate. Thanks, yep. Very excited to be here. Good. And, of course, we've got Jill with us from the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre. Do you want to ask your first question, Jill? All right, I'll go ahead. So I'm going to ask Steve first, but I would like to ask both of you the same question. I'd just like to know a little bit about yourself, so about your background, how you became to work at the Australian National University. Well, unfortunately, that's quite a long story in my case, (laughs) Uh, but I'll I'll try and keep it short. Um, I started off my research career actually working on volcanoes or researching volcanoes in the southwest Pacific, and uh, this is, as you might imagine, a long time ago, back in the late 80s, and as part of that, we got interested in uh, being able to analyse the chemical composition of very small things or very small minerals in these rocks we were looking at, and so... In the sort of mid-90s to late 90s, I actually then got into developing special laser-based technology for being able to analyse really tiny spots or on, on materials that you actually can't even see with your eye. Um, and so we developed that, and then as a result of that, I ended up realising there were so many more exciting projects that we could work on in marine science and uh, climate science. So that's how I got into it. And is that is that what being a biogeochemist is all about, the analysing the little things on, on rocks? No, uh, biogeochemistry is really about... Um, I have this geology background, and I'm really marrying up that geology background with marine biology. And biogeochemistry just happens to be a really powerful area of science that's fairly new. It's between the traditional disciplines of biology and, and geology, in effect, uh, and it turns out that we, we can understand a lot about what goes on in the open ocean by actually uh, understanding the chemistry because it's way too complicated. The biology is way too complicated 
to actually go out there. It's expensive to do to go out in ships. But if we measure the chemistry of the ocean, we can work out what's going on. Fantastic. So bring all the sciences in together. So it all sort of brings all these things all together. Fantastic. We just need to squeeze physics in there somehow, and, and then you'd be doing everything, <laughs> I'm sure. It's there as well, except the name gets too long. <laughs> <laughs> Bio, geo, physi, chem, yeah, yeah. that's too much. doesn't work. All right, Kate, let's, talk, let's hear about yourself now. Um, so I did um, an undergrad degree at the ANU. Um, it's called Global and Ocean Science, so it's got a little bit of everything, sort of like biogeochemistry. So you dabble in all of the sciences and that's why particularly you became wrapped with earth science. And so, um, yeah, then I did a really uh, great honours project um, looking at looking at 4AMs, which we're going to talk about a bit later, I imagine. And, um, and then, yeah, I was super enthused to do a PhD on these little creatures. Awesome. Well, let, let, let's let's jump straight into those little creatures, shall we? Yeah. So yeah. you called them forearms, but their full names foraminifera. Well, I mean, what exactly are they? Um, so they're microscopic, um, single-celled zooplankton. So, um, and the ones that we're interested in are the planktonic ones. So they drift around um, in the well, in the ocean um, most of the time, just in the surface layers, and um, and they build these really tiny little shells made out of calcium carbonate, and that's the part that we're particularly interested in, because when they grow, um, they grow their shells, um, the chemical composition of the shells reflects the ocean conditions at the time. Yeah. Oh wow! And how big are these shells? Because aren't plankton like the microscopic things that whales eat? Uh, <laughs> oh no, that's krill. But, that's krill. Oh, um, they probably sorry. they probably ingest forearms as well as they're yeah. scooping the ocean. I'm sure they've got low nutritional value. Um, <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, so they'd, they'd probably be about a less than a millimetre. Okay. Yeah. Wow. But you can see them... Um, so the shells uh, would be less than a millimetre, but they have these um, spines. Um, I'm probably fa- flailing for a description here. But... Um, Look, there's <laughs> a fantastic picture here of the spines. It looks like a, a little a big bang or something like that with a, a black black hole. Is that the, the foraminifera in the middle there? Mm-hmm. And that's his spines coming out. So it's probably a bit like a sea urchin with the middle part and the spines radiating outwards. We can put the picture up on the Facebook page. Yeah, and they radiate out of this shell. And so, um, yeah, you can can sort of spot them in the ocean when when they're alive, but when they're dead, they're microscopic and you'd need a microscope to see them. (laughs) So so how do you get them then? Do you take your microscope out into the ocean and and start looking or are you just mass collecting and (laughs) then looking when you get back? Um, There there are two techniques. Um, So, yeah, one is that sort of mass... Um, collection, so you put out a net and you scoop them up with a, a lot of other goodies. And then another technique, which is really exciting, is you can scuba dive for them. And so um, you're just diving in the top five to ten meters of the ocean, and um, yeah, you can you can see them. And if the the light's right, so the sun's sort of shining, you know, into the ocean, and all their little spines. Um, They've got these photosynthetic symbionts on them, so they sort of glow a little bit. And, yeah, you see them and we suck them into jars individually and (laughs) (laughs) legitimately. Like with a little water vacuum cleaner or something like that. Uh, No, so um, it's just sort of a process of... um, just manoeuvring the jar in a way, <laughs> just catching the, the four. You can create a bit of a vacuum with the lid and suck them in, oh, but um, yeah, you could just sort of move the jar, <laughs> get them in there. So I like the way your hands are just moving about there, trying to demonstrate. <laughs> this. No, I'm very visual. <laughs> oh. 
All right, so you're speaking at the Marine Science Forum, and, and your talk's entitled Why Put the Acid on Twofold Bay's Planktonic Formanifera? So I suppose that's the next question, is it? <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> why would we put acid on this? Uh, well, there's, there's two reasons why we're really interested in uh, researching these uh, particular foraminifera, the planktonic ones. And uh, one is that their tiny little shells are used to... Um, when the organism dies, the, the, the shell sinks to the bottom of the ocean and collects in the seafloor sediments there. And, and those shells are then used. Um, we measure the chemistry of those shells and we can tell what the conditions were, as Kate said earlier, what they were when the organism was alive. But these shells collect over thousands and millions of years uh, in the ocean. And so people have been collecting these things for a long time and, uh, and, and, and analysing them. But um, the reason why we're interested uh, in doing these experiments that we've been doing at Eden are that... We're actually doing experiments and growing them under controlled conditions, so we're changing the temperature of the seawater, we're changing the acidity of the seawater and seeing how the chemistry of the shells changes when we do that. So that the people, there are thousands of people who work around the world on these um, fossil ones collected in seafloor sediments, but there are very few people who actually grow them under known conditions who are... It's more or less like calibrating your thermometer. We're doing that. So it's like having lots of people out there in the world using thermometers, but they're all <laughs> uncalibrated. We're the people who are actually calibrating the thermometers by doing these experiments to make, little, make it all work properly. Okay, and then you'll be able to see from that, you know, if, if there's certain levels of, of a certain chemical that the, the sea was warmer or colder or more or less acidic? That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And okay. so there, there are a whole range of different chemicals that get incorporated into the, into the shell that tell us about the temperature, about yeah. the acidity. Yeah. What sort of things are you looking at? Chemicals. Well, so for example, the actual the amount that <laughs> the shells are made out of calcium carbonate, and what happens is that the amount of magnesium that that um, goes into that calcium carbonate, for example, is strongly dependent on the temperature okay. of, of the ocean, and so the amount of magnesium goes up by about ten percent for every degree change mm-hmm. in in temperature of the ocean. So it's a very very sensitive thermometer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and magnesium is commonly found throughout and, the ocean. And magnesium is really abundant in the yeah. ocean. And and so in the example of acidity, we actually use... There, there are two really interesting elements that are very dependent on the acidity of the ocean. Um, they're actually constant in the ocean, but the actual form that they take in the ocean is dependent on how acid the ocean is. And, and they're boron and uranium. And uh, this just happens to be Kate's PhD topic, <laughs> looking specifically at boron in, in uh, calcifiers in the ocean, like forams and corals. Yeah. And what have you found so far, Kate? Well, <laughs> I'm still in the very early stages, but we've got, um, we've got an exciting laser technique, which I think Steve is going to talk more about, um, awesome laser systems, and you can, yeah. you can see these really fine-scale changes in, um, in boron, well, um, I guess it would be in the concentration and the isotope composition. And so depending on... Um, what, um, oh, I guess these creatures, um, in their, even in their micro-environments as well as in the, the ocean, um, there's pH changes um, every day. So I mentioned um, the photosymbionts. So <coughs> when they're photosynthesizing and when respiration is a dominant process, um, the pH um, around these little creatures is changing. So you can see that in the isotopes. 
Okay. Yeah, of, of boron. Yeah. So, so just to clarify, so when they're photosynthesizing, there's there's lots of light on them. Yeah. They're... So and so they're taking out the carbon dioxide. Yeah. And so the pH is increasing, so it's less acidic. Right. And then when respiration is a dominant process, um, it's releasing CO2. Yeah. So um, the pH decreases and it's more acidic. And okay. so, yeah, you get different um, boron um, isotope or isotope compositions depending on um, the well, so the availability, as Steve was saying, depends on the peat. Well, not the availability. Yeah, well, there's two different species of boron. Um, and so depending on the pH, the different species are di- differently available are more or less available okay so the different isotopes of boron can be taken into the the foraminifera yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh, and and boron and uranium are also commonly found in the ocean boron and uranium are very common in the yeah. ocean so <laughs> there's there's so much in there yeah. i didn't realize <laughs> i thought it was just water and salt <laughs> there's a lot out there boron's actually quite abundant in the ocean there's, okay um I need to remember how much there is. <laughs> um, there's about three parts per million uranium, which is quite a lot. doesn't sound like a lot, but there's a lot of ocean out there, and when you add up those uh, three parts per million... Yeah. So, uh, and, and this is just a naturally occurring thing. It's not necessarily because of human... No, it's all, it's all naturally occurring. Yeah. And, in fact, neither of these elements are interfered with by, by humans in, in any way, except that when we um, put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that carbon dioxide gets soaked up into the surface ocean and makes it more acidic because it forms this compound called carbonic acid and that's what then changes the form that the uranium and the boron are in in the ocean and how much gets taken up into the little shells when these forearms actually grow their shells so if the ocean's more acidic wouldn't um because they're made of calcium carbonate would you see some like some of their shell dissolving or not growing as well well, that's what's been, that's what's really attracted a lot of research up until now is um, we've known f- for quite a long time, but not really the reasons why. Um, as the ocean does become more acidic, the actual shells of these organisms become lighter, so they're less able to produce the calcium carbonate as the ocean becomes more acidic. Mm. Um, so, so we do know from past um, experiments and um, also just knowledge of, of uh, past changes in the weights of these uh, the shells formed by forearms that that is increasing acidity really does have a significant impact on their shell weight. Yeah. Is that, uh, just to, to clarify here, because uh, acidic compounds, acids would dissolve calcium carbonate being a base, that, that's a reaction that will happen. So is it the fact that it's more difficult to produce the calcium carbonate in an acidic ocean, or are they producing the same amount, but then the acidic ocean is dissolving it as it's produced? We, we think, and we're fairly certain, that yeah. it's more difficult for them to produce the calcium carbonate because what the increasing acidity does is it reduces the amount of carbonate iron that's in the ocean. Yeah. So for the scientists out there, the carbonate iron gets titrated to bicarbonate yeah. iron. And that and they need carbonate iron to form their form mm. their shells. So they need to get calcium and carbonate iron, which are both dissolved in the ocean, dissolved yeah. components that you can't see but they're there. Yeah. And they need to to obtain those to be able to form their calcium carbonate shells. But in the acidic ocean, there's less ingredients, so there's they less ingredients make, yeah. make less of it. Yeah. Awesome. So All that's right. the same thing that's yeah happening on the coral reefs as well. It's, and 
It's exactly the same concern that there is for coral reefs and why corals uh, are calcifying less as the oceans become more acidic. Now, I suppose the other interesting part of this research is how you are analysing it. As Kate mentioned before, you've got a, a laser. Yeah. <laughs> That's always exciting when you say laser. Um, what, what are you using the laser for and, and what sort of results is it giving you? Well, we're, we're using the laser in, in the way that um, all fans of sci-fi films would like us to be using the laser. <laughs> so it's just going, <laughs> pew, pew, pew. And yeah. Kate can do a really good impression of the laser. It's not quite as exciting as that. But what we do with the laser is, is we um, aim this laser at these tiny little shells and we can... And the, the laser vaporises the targeted part of the shell and turns it into atoms, effectively. So, oh, wow. And then we take the atoms and transfer them or transport them to a mass spectrometer where we, can emit, where we, can, we actually count the individual atoms of the different elements and reconstruct the composition of the shell from that. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so the mass spectrometer is separating them out by weight. So you can then have a look at them. That's exactly kind of right. Like, so we can tell the difference between a, a boron iron, yeah. uh, boron, elemental boron versus calcium versus magnesium. Yeah. And we can also measure the individual isotopes of elements like boron. So boron has two isotopes, mass 10, mass 11. We can measure those. And they all, that happens to be a really, really good... Measuring that ratio is very, very sensitive to yeah. the pH of the ocean. Okay. So... Um, to give you an idea, I've actually bought another little um, photograph here. <laughs> so here's our tiny little shell. So for your listeners, I guess yeah. I'm not sure what you're going to do with this. But well, well, we'll probably post that up on our Facebook page yeah. so everyone can have a look. But it does um, look a bit like a brain. So <laughs> well, this is a tiny little shell. This is a different species to this one, but it's about the same size. It's yeah. only about half a millimetre across, so it's pretty tiny. And these are the laser holes. Okay. Oh, drilled wow. through the shell. The shell's a bit like an eggshell in that it's just a, a thin layer of calcium carbonate, um, about 10 microns, so a hundredth of a millimetre yeah. thick. And we drill through this very slowly with the laser. So you heard uh, Kate tick, tick, ticking before. The, the laser is a pulsed laser, so it's pulsed every... Um, we generally pulse it about once every... Um, half a second or yeah. so, and um, each pulse removes 100 nanometers, which is a really, really small amount of material from the surface. So we can actually profile our way through the shell wall very oh. slowly. So, and for each laser pulse, you're getting the the results from just that pulse? That's exactly ah, right. Okay, so. so you can see the build-up over time yep. in there. And, and the shells are layered like, um, like tree rings. So yeah. they're layered with daily bands. So each day they put down a, a new band of calcite, and we can... We can tell the different composition yeah. of the shell, and even we can see as they move up and down in the water column from warmer water at the surface to colder water at night when they move deeper down, and we can see all that recorded in the shells. So it sounds like a, a quite a, a, an amazingly accurate technique to be able to see all those fine little changes that are happening. It's very accurate. Yeah. It's actually, even after, I mean, I was involved in the development of these systems and I'm still amazed 15 <laughs> years later what we can do with them. Yeah. They really are phenomenal. And you said you're just starting out on your PhD research, Kate. Yeah. Uh, what are you hoping to find as you go away with that laser? So we mentioned that, I guess, 
normally people look at the bulk compositions of these foram shells and sort of use them to look back at past climates and um, ocean conditions. But um, evidently, as Steve was just saying, even in the day and the night, you get different compositions in the forums. So sort of really looking into how they're calcifying and what they're doing is sort of how, what I hope to get out of it, because evidently there's a lot going on there that we're sort of just bypassing to get a bulk result. Yeah. So really fine scale. Um, yeah, so you're gonna, your PhD is going to be like a day in the life of a... Like, <laughs> oh, sounds so glamorous. I was gonna say, <laughs> sounds like a book you're going to have to write. <laughs> day in the life of a forearm. <laughs> 50 layers of forearm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so... Um, and that's going to involve some culturing of forearms um, under certain conditions so we can sort of manipulate the way... Or, or you know, we know certain chemistries, so... Um, tell how they grow out of those, and um, yeah, a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> so, do you also notice a change in the thickness of the layers? So, you know, do they produce the same sort of thickness every day, or is it changing depending on the conditions? Oh, and so, in the day, the conditions are more favourable for calcification, so you get thicker day bands than they also calcify at night, and you get thinner night bands because, as I was saying, respiration is the dominant process, so it's. It's more acidic and potentially you've got less energy available if the photosynbionts are providing energy to, okay. the, to the forearm, then that's not going to be occurring at night. So you get these thick and thin bands. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, they can show a lot. So you've been talking about that you've been doing the research on these forearms and as I work at the Marine Discovery Centre in Eden, you were researching down there, down you know, in Twofold Bay. So... Why did you pick Twofold Bay other than to come and, you know, hang out with us down at the Discovery Centre? <laughs> well, there was a fantastic Discovery <laughs> Well, the reason why we're at Twofold Bay is um, twofold, in a way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about the pun. <laughs> uh, the fact that the Marine Discovery Centre is there provides us with um, a lab space where we can work. Um, the reason why we're at working in Twofold Bay is it wasn't actually planned in the first place. We originally <laughs> wanted to work... Our idea was to work out of Dunedin in, um, in the South Island of New Zealand and mm. out of Tasmania because what we're specifically interested in is growing southern ocean forams or southern ocean species of forams because they're the ones that are perceived to be most at risk from ocean acidification as we put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, the, the acidity... Yeah, the Southern Ocean is more acid than all the other oceans, and that's mm. because it's colder. Um, anyway, so um, so we're interested in Southern Ocean species, but it turns out that the weather in uh, in Dunedin and the sea conditions in Dunedin and also <laughs> uh, Tasmania are just horrendous. Um, but but Eden's actually turns out to be a mecca for forearms, for planktonic forearms. And that's because it sort of more or less sits on the boundary between where we get southern ocean species and species coming from the tropics on the East Australian current coming down. So this time of year, for example, when it's warm, we've got lots of tropical species. But in the spring, there are all these uh, southern ocean species. So that's why we've been working at Twofold Bay, uh, because we can go out and collect them more easily than we can in other places and because we've got the facility there (laughs) to do the to do the research. 
Good luck with your, your future collections. Hopefully you don't find any with forearms disease anymore. <laughs> um, and uh, good luck with your future research. I look forward to hearing more about um, what you guys find uh, looking through these shelves. Um, so thanks very much for joining us today, Kate and Steve. Our pleasure, Brod. Jill, thanks for having us. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic to have you here on Fuzzy Logic. Welcome back to Fuzzy Logic, where today we're talking about who cares in marine science for the Who Cares Marine Science Forum. Our next guest today is Kylie Owen. Kylie is a PhD student at the Cetacean Ecology and Acoustics Laboratory at the University of Queensland. Good morning, Kylie. Good morning, how are you? Well, thanks. Fantastic to have you with us today. Uh, now, we're hoping to have a great chat about your research, and I think Jill's going to kick off with the, uh, the first question today. So I think okay. we're going to start off first trying to understand a little bit about, I mean, you work with whales, and this is the dream job that I know when I was in primary school, I always wanted to work with whales. So is it all it's cracked up to be? Um, I certainly think it is. I mean, like any job, it definitely has its highs and its lows. So, I mean, we do spend a lot of time also in the office dealing with data and statistics and writing up um, papers and that sort of thing. But, yeah, I think the highs of being out in the field with the animals and um, being able to actually make a difference to the conservation of the animals is definitely worthwhile, and I I certainly enjoy it. Mm, So how did you get into researching whales? Uh, I started volunteering when I was 13 with um, different marine mammal research projects. And um, so while I was in high school, um, and also while at university, I continued to volunteer on different projects to um, sort of, you know, get to know people and what the job involved and build up a set of skills. And um, once I was old enough to go to uni, I went to the University of Melbourne and did a Bachelor of Science majoring in marine biology and zoology. And then I moved over to Monash University for an honours project where I studied the uh, feeding ecology of different dolphin species in Victorian waters using a process called stable isotope analysis. And so, um, yeah, basically any holidays I had, I, I volunteered my time and used that time to learn skills and meet people that could help me get future opportunities. So, yeah, yeah I've been very lucky. Well, it sounds like you've been working in uh, marine science for quite a <laughs> while now. That's amazing, the amount of stuff you've done. Now, do you have a favourite marine mammal now that you're you know, researching <laughs> all of them? Um, uh, not really. I mean... Top predators are always, you know, the, I find the more exciting ones to, to study. I, I like looking at predator-prey interactions. So definitely, you know, the killer whale is, is one that's um, sort of always, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for. But, you know, I think they're all fascinating animals and, yeah. Um, yeah. Have you had much of a chance to um, be with the killer whales in the wild? Um, I've seen them on a few occasions. Um, my first sighting of them was off Stradbroke Island when we were doing a survey on humpback whales off the coast there and... Um, I actually took myself on a holiday over to Peninsula Valdez in Argentina to oh, wow. um, see them attacking seals off the oh. beach. Um, and then on a recent Antarctic trip, I saw them a few times as well. So that was pretty cool to see them up close. Yeah, they were down in Eden not too long ago, but I keep missing them. And one of the ones I'm desperate to see. So you're going to be presenting at the Marine Discovery Centre's Marine Science Forum and you're going to be talking about the feeding behaviour of humpback whales and how changes in their prey species can influence can influence that. So, I mean, first off, we'll start by asking, what is prey for whales? Uh, so humpback whales around the world have quite a varied diet. So as far as whales go, they're, they're really not fussy on what they, they feed on. Um, so in, around the North America, they've been shown to feed on a lot of different species of fish and also different um, species of krill. And um, they've evolved really quite 
um, unique techniques to um, to target the different prey species. And off the coast of Eden, we've seen them feeding on a coastal krill species called Nyctiphanes australis, which is found sort of in the southern part of New South Wales, around through Victoria and Tasmania. And they also um, target different bait fish species, so sardines and mackerel and that sort of thing. So, yeah, they're quite flexible in what they can feed on, although the southern hemisphere populations are thought for the most part to be a krill specialist population where the majority of their diet is made up of Antarctic krill. Yeah, well, this is the thing that always confuses me with whales because there's so many different... They, they eat The different species eat different things, like there's the ones that can only eat the tiny plankton and, and that sort of thing. And what, what are the limitations in, in humpback eating? Um, so I suppose the big limitation is they have to be able to filter whatever they catch um, through the baleen. Yeah. So um, the way that whales feed, they have these big sheets of um, keratinized tissue that hang from their upper jaw... So they don't have any teeth. And what they do is they use these plates of baleen to filter prey out of the water. So humpback whales are a rucal species. So these are the species of whale that have the ventral pleating along their belly, if you like. And they, what they do, they swim at speed towards a patch of prey and they engulf the patch of prey. And then they use muscles in their ventral surface to push the water back out through the baleen and the prey remains trapped in their baleen. So they actually have no way of chewing. So they have to filter animals that are big enough to get energy out of that will still be trapped by the baleen, but that aren't so big that they need to be chewed before they get swallowed. Right, so it's like when you, you've, you've cooked your pasta and you put it through the strainer, they, they get to keep all the pasta and all the water goes exactly. back out again. <laughs> exactly, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and the it... pasta needs to be small enough that they can swallow it but without chewing it. Right, okay, so yeah. So very... Yeah, I've heard that blue whales actually have quite a small throat for what they're sizes so they can't actually swallow anything ginormous so the ideas of people you know getting swallowed by a blue whale is that sort of yeah, thing not possible? necessarily true no yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely sure to be honest um of the size of the, the blue whale's throat but yeah certainly they can't swallow massive massive prey items mm. okay so your your research is looking at um how they uh feed and that sort of thing and you're looking at the the behavior of when they feed is that right yeah that's correct so um, using a, a device called a D-tag. So this is a, de- a device that was developed by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in the States. And uh, what it does is it records all the three-dimensional movements of the whales while they're underwater. Oh. And so it does this using accelerometers and magnetometers, and it also has a pressure sensor on board. So we get a, a dive profile of the animal, so we know how deep it goes on each dive. And we can also see when it rolls or um, how its heading changes. So essentially, if the whale's doing somersaults underwater, we can see that they're doing somersaults oh, underwater. Wow, that's cool. And they, they also have hydrophones on board that record the sounds the whales make concurrently to these movements. So we really get this nice three-dimensional picture of exactly what they're doing underwater while we can't see them. Okay. So um, I suppose it's kind of like having a little little iPhone attached to them, isn't it? Because the iPhone can measure how you're moving and measure the sound. Um, have, you, have you found them singing for their supper or anything like that? Um, so what I'm trying to look at is whether or not they have any sounds they use to actually coordinate their feeding. So in the Northern Hemisphere, they have this thing called a feeding call, and it's thought that this sound is used to either startle the prey or to coordinate a group of whales to feed synchronously on the prey. And so off Eden, they do feed synchronously. We get groups of two to three animals um, feeding and lunging at the same time on a patch of prey. And so I'm trying to look at whether or not they use sound to actually coordinate that, and they haven't actually 
done enough analysis of that data yet to give you an answer on that, but it's definitely something that I'm, I'm looking at. Okay, and you said you're doing this research off Eden. Why did you choose Eden uh, to go to? Um, so humpback whales migrate from their main feeding ground in the Antarctic up to the Coral Sea where they have their breeding grounds. And for the most part, humpback whale populations around the world are thought to fast from the time that they leave their feeding ground until they return to their feeding ground the following summer. But there's all sorts of anecdotal and um, opportunistic reports of whales feeding while on migration. And most of these observations are sort of a once-off event, seen once every you know, few years, one whale feeding off the coast of Queensland. But what happens off Eden is really quite unique because every year these whales stop and feed in this area and they spend quite a bit of time in the area. We had one whale in 2011. We saw it hanging out off Eden for nine days. And that's really quite rare worldwide to see animals dedicating so much time while on migration to feeding. And so looking back through whaling records that are found at the Eden Killer Whale Museum, we know that um, these animals have been doing it for quite a long time off Eden. There's whaling records talking about whales feeding in the area back to the early 1900s. So, so it seems to be quite an important part of their ecology that we just don't, we really don't understand at all. Mm. Yeah, so what makes Eden so special in that way? Why are they feeding off there other than other places? Is, is there an awesome underwater restaurant that's, that's there or something <laughs> like that? Um, so that's another thing we're looking at, um, trying to look at environmental differences um, between um, different areas around Eden along the coast. And so uh, what my theory is is basically because they have such a, a, a feeding strategy that requires so much energy, they need high densities of prey. If they're going to lunge at a patch of prey, it needs to be a big enough patch of prey that they get enough energy return for the energy they put into catching the prey. And so in tropical areas, while you get a high diversity of species, you don't tend to get the high levels of abundance that you get in temperate and polar waters. So it may just be that it's sort of the part of the coast where they can start to um, get a high enough level of prey that it's worthwhile them feeding. So you may still occasionally get a patch of prey that's big enough for a whale to feed on up in Queensland, which is why every now and then you hear a report of a whale feeding. But to get enough prey to make a high enough number of the population stop to feed, you really need to get to the sort of latitude around Eden for that to start to happen. So what makes the abundance of prey happen in Eden? Is there, um, We heard from Steve earlier, he was saying something about it's the meeting of the cold and the um, warm currents. Is that something to do with it? or? Yeah, potentially. Um, so we really don't know at this stage. It's likely that there's um, a lot of upwelling that causes um, a spring bloom of phytoplankton, which then feeds, you know, provides food for krill, which is the food the whales then feed on. So it's likely to be a whole succession of events that lead to there suddenly being enough prey for a whale to stop and feed. So the phytoplankton that's bad for the forearms that we heard earlier is brilliant for the whales. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Would it have anything to do with the the um, babies with them at, at that time too? Because if, if memory serves me correctly, and I've only been down to Eden a couple of times, but when they're coming back through Eden the second time, they've got their, their little calves with them. Um, is, is that going to affect why they stop? Um, potentially. So um, there is some thought that females, because they put so much energy into um, both gestation and giving birth to a young and then they also lactate and continue feeding the young while they're migrating, that they may be more in need of supplementary nutrition or migration. But to be honest, the, the majority of animals we see feed tend to be sub-adults. So smaller animals that perhaps know they're not going to have a chance on the breeding grounds that migrate out of the Antarctic for the winter and maybe just don't migrate the whole way. Okay. Um, so, but we at this stage we we still don't 
we still don't know. We definitely do see females with calves feeding as well. Um, so, yeah, it's likely to be important for a number of animals for a variety of different reasons. And how long do you think before you'll you have an idea of um, of what they're what they're doing there? How many more seasons do you need to, to go through? Do you think? Um, so for my PhD, I've finished all my data collection. Um, so I'll be spending the next year to two years writing up and analysing all the data to produce a thesis. That sounds like um, so much fun. <laughs> exactly, that's what I mean. The highs and the lows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not hard for me. So, um, but yeah. So we like to continue this project in the future and I uh, think we'll just probably get an insight into what preliminary results come as a result of my PhD and then that'll give us a better idea of how we can build on that in the future to have more targeted questions of you know, things that we find out of my research. Yeah, so we actually um, got to see some of your work going on down at the Discovery Centre and we had to install a little rifle cabinet for you to be able to use. What were you using the, the rifles out on the sea for? Um, so we actually use, it's a modified rifle um, that we use to biopsy the animals. So it essentially fires a hollow dart at the animals that collects a small skin sample. And we can use this skin sample to then determine the sex of the whales that we're watching. And also it can be stored for other analysis. So I used it for stable isotope analysis. And this technique can give us an indication of what the whales are feeding on, um, potentially on the body condition of the animals. And you can still store part of the sample to then be used for future analysis of hormones or um, reproductive status or toxicology levels. So it's a really valuable little sample that you can collect very easily and with minimal impact on the animal by using this this starting system. Fantastic. Well, look, good luck with um, all your write-up and analysis and all that fun stuff that you get to do in the office. Thank you. <laughs> and um, thanks very much for joining us here today on Fuzzy Logic. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. Our final guest for today is Dr Jane Sexton. Jane joined Geoscience Australia in 2005, working collaboratively with the Australian Government agencies to understand tsunami risk. And she's here today to talk more about tsunamis. Hi, Jane. How are you going? Oh, yeah, great. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. So, Jane, we're interested to know a bit about your background and how you came to be working with tsunamis. Okay. So, yes, I joined Geoscience Australia seven and a half years ago to do tsunami modelling. And the reason that was, was that I don't have a background in tsunami hazards or I'm not a geologist or a geophysicist in any stretch of the imagination, but I have a mathematical background. And so that came to the fore in in order to be able to build models and work out how we're going to determine where tsunamis are going to impact the Australian coastline. So background in mathematics, like that's Mm. not, we don't often have mathematicians on Fuzzy, to be honest. We have them on Pi Day and that's about (laughs) it. Um, Is it... Did you come from like a sort of pure numbers perspective and decide you wanted to apply that maths to something or were you always into modelling and, and the real-world mathematics? Yeah, um, very interesting question. Yeah, so there's a, a whole range of brands of mathematicians and um, I'd call myself an applied mathematician. So for years um, before coming to Geoscience Australia, I've been involved in working on combustion modelling, for example, um, working in defence science as well of another sort of set of modelling questions. And so from a mathematician point of view, it's really about trying to work with others to understand the process that you're you're trying to capture in the mathematical language. (laughs) So then you can go and build um, some computational models to work out um, what, what the answer to your applied problem might be. 
So, yeah, mathematicians are a reasonable rare breed, (laughs) I suppose. But the beauty about um, Geoscience Australia and and other agencies as well is that you do work in very diverse teams. So people bring their specialist expertise to the party. So geologists, geophysicists, structural engineers, um, geospatial analysts, um, and throw in the odd mathematician and statistician as well. And we can, as a team, um, try and understand what tsunami risk is to Australia. Oh, wow. So the title that you're going to be presenting at the Marine Science Forum is Tsunami, How Wet Will You Get? An intriguing <laughs> title, to say the least. But, all right, before we get to the fun part of that title, we'll look at tsunami, and so we'll talk about what a tsunami is. Um, I thought that in Australia we didn't really get tsunamis. Is that true? Um, since European settlements, really, we've had um, quite a sort of handful of experience of, of knowing when tsunamis have impacted the Australian coastline. They, so they have been reasonably rare, um, to, to say the least. But um, 1960, and there'll be a number of listeners, I'm sure, who will remember the 1960 Chilean earthquake that generated probably one of the world's largest tsunamis, and that was felt all the way around the world. And the east coast of Australia was impacted by that tsunami. And um, that tsunami came into Sydney Harbour. It was recorded there on the tide gauge, and it stayed in Sydney Harbour for several days. So we do know that Australians... Sorry, when you you say it stayed in Sydney Mm. Harbour, sorry to interrupt, Mm. but does that mean that the the water level in Sydney Harbour stayed high for a few days? Yeah, well, it it moves. It, It sort of... It rises and falls as the tsunami... Um, wave, it's a continuation of waves, it's not okay. just one wave yeah. um, that, that comes out of a, a, an earthquake event and sometimes you might you read in, in um, you know, on the web or somewhere that it rings, if you like, like a bell around the whole world so yeah. this, the 1960 tsunami was felt, you know, worldwide and it, it oscillated around and around for, for many many days, yeah. so that that so event as well was also found, felt on the west coast of Australia. Oh, wow. So yeah. it's gone all the way around. Yes, indeed. So that's one that will be in more recent memory. Yeah. And then, of course, there was the 2004 event um, that occurred, which was you know, obviously a devastating um, impact within our region. But, um, yeah, there have been, a, have been a handful, obviously not, not a, a lot. Mm. And so Australians really don't think that um, tsunamis is really going to be an issue for us. But... That's not what the Australian government believed, and and we're trying to understand what that impact might be. So, so we do have a, a pretty good warning system in place, and that was only put in since the 2004 tsunami. So how does the... I mean, it's called the Australian Tsunami Warning System. How does that actually work? How do we warn people? Okay, well... So, the, so it is a what we call a system. So there are a range of different elements that constitute that system. So when the Australian government decided to go and build a tsunami warning system. There were three Australian government agencies that were involved in that, and we all had different roles. Um, The Bureau of Meteorology, Geoscience Australia, and Emergency Management Australia, which is part of the Attorney General's Department. Um, in addition to all the state emergency service agencies around around Australia that that play a role in terms of warning warning um, the Australian public, so the Australian Tsunami Warning System, in terms of what was actually built, um, so the Bureau of Meteorology put in place what we call Dart Boys or Tsunami Meters, something <laughs> like that. Dart Boys is <laughs> easier to say. Um, 
And what they do is out in the deep water is to try and detect when a tsunami has um, transited past that, that place. Um, Geoscience Australia has a strong background in detecting earthquakes. And we've got a seismic um, network here in Australia, um, but that reaches into using the seismic network um, worldwide so we can understand when an earthquake has occurred um, and try and find out how big it is, where it, where it has happened and... Once that's reached a certain threshold, that information is passed over to the Bureau of Meteorology, who then work out what that might mean in terms of how to warn different parts of parts of the um, the coastline. So they use their their existing warning system that they do for um, weather warnings. Um, so that's the sort of more technical side of what the warning system is. Yeah. But then the emergency services agencies need to work out, well, what does that mean for my community and what sort of plans do I need to have in place so that I can actually use that information and, if needed, evacuate my community. Actually, one of my favourite things about the tsunami warning system, I went to a Geoscience Australia Open Day a few years ago, and they were giving away these frisbees that said Australia's tsunami warning system. And I thought, that's a brilliant system. You just chuck the frisbees to people on the beach and then they get off the beach when they've got the frisbees. Oh, fantastic idea. Yeah. Exactly. And that is most definitely a key message. Get, yeah. off, get off the beach. Get out of the water. You know, if you're surfing or you're yeah. swimming in, in the beach. You just chuck them a frisbee and then they get can get off. Get, yeah. get out. That's right. <laughs> I assume they were just promotional, and that's not actually I, the warning system. Yeah, I think yeah. it's just a little okay. bit more sophisticated yeah. than that. <laughs> well, actually, to talk about the sophistication, you mentioned the tsunamometers or the dart boys. boys. Now, what are they actually measuring out in the ocean? Because I, I thought when a tsunami passes in open ocean, it's it can almost be undetectable, can't it? That's right. Um, so tsunamis, a in the deep ocean, yeah, you it's unlikely to see them. Um, generally because they're moving so fast and also that they don't have much what we call wave height or or amplitude. There's a, some terminology mm. differences in there. But, yeah, because um, it doesn't look like those giant waves that you see in the, no, the movies and that sort of thing. Not, not, not at all. Not, yeah. not certainly in the, in the deep ocean. Mm. So what those dart boys are really measuring is the fact that a, a tsunami, when it's generated from an earthquake, and we can talk about how there are other ways to generate a tsunami. But if it's generated from a tsunami, um, uh, from an earthquake, sorry, that happens on the seafloor, a subduction zone that is in very deep water, then the, the surface of the, the sea has been displaced and it is displaced with so much energy and force that it is displacing the water column above it. And so when a tsunami is then transiting away from from where it has been generated, it's feeling the bottom bottom of the ocean its entire way. So it's what those dart boys are measuring is really some pressure changes. They they can sense when that tsunami has has gone through that buoy system, um, and. I don't really know, and that's really the Bureau of Meteorology's job in terms of actually knowing what else it can do there, but it must be able to detect um, some wave height as well because they use that information to refine um, where they are going to issue their warnings. Mm, Wow. I knew a bit about the tsunami warning system, but I I knew about the Geoscience Australia aspect. (laughs) (laughs) So... I'm going to come back to your your title of tsunami. How wet will you get? Because I want to know <laughs> how wet I will get, and yeah. and how can we know that without actually you know going out and causing a tsunami and making mm. it hit Australia? 
Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> this is and and this this is where the um, what we're going to talk about here, the tsunami modelling, really come comes into play. So earlier we talked about the fact that really there hasn't been a lot of tsunamis that have ever occurred historically. And so we don't have a lot of events that we can go back to and try and generalise, if you like, about what we think the potential impact might be into the future. So what we try and do is understand the history of tsunami from what it, from what it currently is, and then we build physical models, well, physical mathematical models, I suppose, <laughs> not, not physical models um, per se, and and try and predict where we think the, um, how tsunamis will behave in, in different settings. So we, we understand how waves flow, and so we've got some basic equations that we can put into a computer to try and determine how a tsunami will, will be able to go through the deep ocean and then also to how it will um, come up along the shoreline. Um, now, the, part of the problem for Australia is, is that we have got quite a lot of coastline. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> quite a lot of coastline. And to do very detailed modelling at every community would take a very long time <laughs> as well. So when we first started doing some of this tsunami modelling, it might take nearly a week to, to run one tsunami model to try and work out um, what the potential inundation might be from just one event. So let, let's take a historical event like the 2004 um, Indian Ocean tsunami and try and work out what the the inundation might be at a at a particular location. So it takes it can take a long time. Yeah. So so we try and um, work with the states and territories to work out you know which areas we think might be a little bit more vulnerable and and try and work out what the inundation might be there. So what we do is build is build models. We put very detailed information into that about what the land looks like because tsunamis vary in a lot depending on which part of the coastline you're on and Australia is surrounded by a continental shelf which is in variable distance from the coast so up on the northwest shelf it's a long way away and on the east coast of Australia it's very close to our coastline but comparatively and so that's going to have an impact on how tsunamis are going to behave as they come closer to shore and if I could just back up and also say that tsunamis in the deep ocean are much easier to model in the sense that they are travelling very fast, so we can have a we have a different technique in how we can model that. But when a tsunami comes very close to shore, it it behaves um, in very complicated ways depending on what the shoreline looks like. So you might have um, a cliff, for example, and a tsunami will come up against it and smack up against a cliff and bounce. Back, or it might have a little beach where it might decide to run up very quickly because it's shaped just the right way and a tsunami yeah. will, will run up it. Yeah. <laughs> so, And it's hard to work out that before you even start is because you know, there wasn't a lot of knowledge worldwide before the 2004 event on, on, on tsunami modelling really in general. There, I mean, there certainly were... So, you know some researchers who are involved in doing tsunami modelling, but not really a lot. So it's it's been a, a, a steep learning curve for a lot of people around the world. Yeah. 
There's some really fa- um, fascinating stuff, and I suppose it's important uh, to have this modelling so we can see what's going to happen again, because you really won't have that much time, like you said, 90 minutes if, if something happens mm. off the coast of New Zealand to be able to make that prediction and, and, and see what's actually going to happen. Is, is, there, is there really much we can do in that time besides evacuating the beach? Yeah, and if I could just say, I suppose, is that the intent is with the, the very detailed modelling is currently, I mean, maybe into the future, but currently we, we really can't do that in real time. Yeah. Um, so, so, what, um, <clears throat> so what we do at the moment is, is based on what we, uh, uh, you know, has come out of the, the modelling so far is, is, to, is to really to say for Australia, we need to get off the beach get out of the water, get off the beach and try and move away from the beach as as sort of as practical that you can but always always listen to your emergency services guys. <laughs> <laughs> they they will know but, yeah. but what they really want to do is get you away from the beach. Awesome. Well thanks very much for joining us today Jane and talking a bit about the mathematical modelling that goes behind our, our tsunami warning system and look I as much as I'm sure you put a lot of work into it, I hope we don't actually have to use it. <laughs> oh, yeah, we hope so. We hope so too. <laughs> that about wraps it up for another Fuzzy Logic Science show. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about some marine science this Sunday. And if you do want to hear more, there's actually a forum happening next weekend. Isn't it that right, Jill? It is. So down in Eden, um, at the Eden High School, we're going to be having a marine science forum over Saturday the 4th and Sunday the 5th of May. We're going to be having six exciting speakers talking about all sorts of different marine sciences. So you can sign up for that, come down for a beautiful weekend in Eden. You can get all the details about the forum on our website, sapphirecoastdiscovery.com.au, or you can head to our Facebook page for the event there as well. That's right. Fuzzy Logic likes Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery. so and if... we like you right back. <laughs> Fantastic. So you can find it through there. We may even post and share the details of the event on our Facebook page too, so you can find out more. But thanks very much for coming down to camp today jill thanks for having me brett uh, it's been great to have you here and thank you very much listeners for tuning in once again to fuzzy logic your science on a sunday